everyone. Um, today we are in Romans, believe it or not. Uh, back in Romans, yeah, we'll be finishing the book in a couple of weeks. Very excited about that party, by the way. It's going to be great. Um, so if you, have a, if you have a Bible, jump with me to Romans 15. Today's really like a part two of Matt's message last week, um, to be honest. And so if you have a Bible, jump into Romans 15. I'm going I'm to read it and we'll pray uh, for these words that they go in, not just into our ears, but into our hearts. This is our passage today. We're going to go from verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've been doing this morning already, isn't it? Therefore, the therefore is the therefore because we've been called to this harmony and this uh, joining together to glorify God together. Because of this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, so the descendant of Jesse, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. That's Jesus. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. I'm actually going to pray a prayer from uh, Mr. Charles Spurgeon for us this morning. That's what he says. He says, oh, so would you pray with me? Oh, living Christ, make this a living word to me. Your word is life, but not without the Holy Spirit. I may know this book of yours from beginning to end and repeat it all from Genesis to Revelation, and yet may it be a dead book to me, and I may have a dead soul. Lord, be present here. Then I will look up from the book to the Lord, from the precept to him who fulfilled it, from the law to him who honored it, from the threatening to him who has borne it for me, and from the promise to him in whom it is all yes and amen. He is here. He is here with me in this chamber of mine. I must not trifle with him. He leans over me. He puts his finger along the lines. I can see his pierced hand. I will read it as in his presence. Lord, today we believe this. 
We believe that the word of God is not a dead book, but you are, but it is alive because you are alive and you're speaking to us through your word. You're here with us. Lord, would we see your hand along the words, pointing us out to the, each and every verse? Would we see your pierced hand? Would we hear your voice? You are here with us. And so we come to your text today in your presence and under your lordship. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he's a famous pastor theologian in the 20th century, incredibly uh, influential Presbyterian man. Um, He wrote of this idea of there being two orthodoxies. Uh, That word orthodoxy uh, is referring to kind of like true biblical Christianity that Jesus taught as opposed to kind of false Christianity, heresy, uh, a pretend Christianity um, that we might find out in the world as well. And he said there's two orthodoxies that are necessary for the church. He spoke of, firstly, the obvious one, right, the orthodoxy of doctrine, that there are true beliefs that we must confess. Um, our theology must be true and biblical and, and, and from the word of God. It must be in alignment with the truth. But he spoke of a second orthodoxy, Orthodoxy of community. Orthodoxy of community. That, uh, he's referring to this, this, this collective experience of the gospel among people. He's referring to this idea that when the gospel actually lands into a group of people and Jesus begins to be king there and he begins to work out his will among those people, something happens. Jesus starts winning, and we start laying down our rights to follow our king. Things change, right? We find this this new culture beginning to emerge that is in line with the gospel. So his big idea is this, right? Orthodoxy of doctrine alone by itself in a vacuum isn't enough to make a church orthodox, to make a, a real church. We need both of those two things together. So, of course, just to say the obvious, so you don't mishear what I'm saying, what a church believes, uh, what, it, what a church might say on its, say, like it's a statement of faith page on its website where it has all its details about these are things we believe, right? That stuff is incredibly important. If you know our church, we love theology here. Doctrine is important. We think hard about those things. We want to be in line with the truth. And so we want to articulate those things in, in, with care. But our doctrinal statement in a vacuum by itself is not enough. It's not what makes our church orthodox or true, biblical, a real church. Why do you think that's the case? What do you think he's trying to point out here? If our theology is truly believed here, if we believe what we say we believe, then it must do something among us or we don't actually believe it. Isn't that obvious? If we believe it, we would, we would live it out. And so our beliefs about the gospel, our beliefs about grace, they are not mere abstractions that hang in the air over us. They must bear their full authority over us as a community, or we don't believe it, or we just straight up don't believe those things. And maybe you're here today and, um, you know, not, not all of us 
grew up in this church, obviously. I doubt many of us did, although some of us did. Um, But maybe you're here today and you've been in a church like this and you're still walking with a bit of a limp from those wounds you carry from this kind of church where where the doctrines of grace failed to make that church gracious because there was a hardness of heart to the gospel. I just want you to know, if that's you, if you've got a background where you kind of walk with a limp, that, that wound matters to Jesus. He would like to heal that wound. He is a healing God. The back third of Romans, chapters 12 onwards really, are helping us see how important it is for us that we let the gospel shape our community, that that is a non-negotiable in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. And in this passage today, Paul is once more continuing to underline, circle, highlight, circle back, reiterate, Just he's just repeating it again and again and again, this idea that it is, it is a non-negotiable among us, that we love one another, that we are joined together into a new community, that we have peace and unity. Uh, The word in our text today, harmony. That matters to our Lord Jesus. And in our world today of endless division, endless self-righteous outrage, in our culture today of constant shaming one another, and that confident denouncing one another as all that is wrong with our world today. Do you know what I'm talking about? The vitriol that goes on in the name of Jesus. What can be more important for us? (laughs) To hear that Jesus has another way for us than to go the same way of the world as the world. He wants to create a new social reality, a new community, a gospel-centered community community centered on the gospel. And this is timely for us, I think, right now because of where our culture is at and the heat in our culture and the, the, the quickness to divide and fight and go to war over secondary stuff. It's going to be necessary for us into the, the future as the, as the temperature continues to rise on those things and we find more things to divide over. These chapters in Romans are here for us to teach us that the church is to go a different way. We are to be a complete counterculture to what we see in the world. We are to say a hard no, a hard no to that kind of self-serving tribalism that we see everywhere else in the world. We are to prove the glory of the gospel as true by living out the glory of the gospel in our relationships. We are to prove, let me say that again, we are to prove the glory of the gospel as true by living out the glory of the gospel in our relationships so the world can see it and see its beauty and the way we love one another, the way we forgive one another. We talked last week about the way, in the way which we bear with one another over things we disagree about, the way we love one another in our disagreements. I think think our Lord Jesus said it most clearly to us when he, said to, when he said this, he says, just as I have loved you, self-sacrificial love, the kind of love that lays down his life, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. It doesn't get much more straight than that. Jesus is saying the world has a right. He actually gives the world a right to hold us accountable to how we love one another and to judge whether we are his, truly his disciples or not. Friends, our love for one another is not the piece of parsley you pop on top of the real important stuff of faith. It's not the garnish to complete things. It's the gospel lived out. It's real Christianity on the ground, in relationship, lived out for the glory of God. And so because of this, we've got to, as a church, we must commit to taking this seriously. There's a lot at stake here, Jesus says. It's for his sake. And for Paul, what's for stake at Paul here in Romans 15 is the integrity of the gospel. The integrity of the gospel lived out in community in Christ. And so today we're going to be, um, we're going to be picking things up back in verse 5. Matt did cover 5, 6, 7 last week, but it's just too good. And so we're going to be talking about it again today. Um, also, Danielle on Thursday night is talking about welcoming, which is in our passage, which means three, three messages in a row we're talking about this. Danielle pointed out, maybe the Lord's trying to tell us something. <laughs> we're here again. We're going to hear it a lot. Um, we're going to be going from verse 5. Um, we're going to be stepping through this passage in, in, in four parts, but we'll major on the... In, um, three and four, probably. We'll see. Um, Number one, verses five and six. Our unity comes from above, comes down to us from from the Lord. Secondly, our unity flows from Jesus' acceptance of us. It flows from Jesus' acceptance of us, verses seven in particular. Uh, um, Verses eight to 12, our unity, it fulfills God's plan for the world. We'll, We'll get there. And then finally, not about unity. <laughs> it couldn't make it work. So for those of you that know that I love patterns, yeah, this, this hurt me, this one. It's a benediction, which, which just means blessing. It's just a blessing at the end of the passage. But it's great, but it doesn't fit. Um, and you know what, guys? That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it, it is. It is, right? No, it is. Um, God's gift of joy, peace, and most importantly, their hope. All right, unity comes from above. We're going to get back to that passage, uh, back to verse 5, and we're going to see it here. May the God of endurance and encouragement, I love the titles that Paul gives to to God in in these benedictions. He's the God of hope. He's the God here of endurance and encouragement. That's who he is. May that God grant you, which means give you. Would he give you something? What is he going to give us? To live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, in the pattern set before us in Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's so great. That's so wonderful. God wants to give us the gift of harmony. Gift of harmony. Gift of peace. Gift of one voiceness. Made up that word. This, this, this prayer we see from Paul, it reminds us that, that true unity actually is a gift that comes from God, not something we muster together. Matt made this point for us last week. Um, when we make unity the goal, when we aim at unity, when we try to go as a community, all right, everyone, let's get unified. What happens is we make unity an idol, 
And we can't do it because we actually need something to unify us. We can't just aim at unity. It doesn't work that way. Um, Tozer has a wonderful analogy that I think makes this point, A.W. Tozer. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So to 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, quote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Isn't that helpful? Friends, if we as a church go, we want to be unified, we can't just make that happen. We have to actually, each individually, bow our knee to another standard, another king. We look to Christ, and in heart, we are closer to each other than we could ever be than if we were to say, let's, let's aim at unity together. We are tuning our, our lives, our hearts, our souls to the same fork of Christ, his word, his gospel. Because that's what's going to unify us. I hope and pray that our church remains as unified as it is right now. But guys, according to this verse, I think we have ways to go. <laughs> There's always more God can give us. So let's go after that. Let's go get it. Let's pray together in our prayer time next week. Let's pray that God would give us the gift of deeper harmony, truer harmony in Christ. In Christ. So the unity comes to us from above. Secondly, this is so important, our unity flows from Jesus' own acceptance of us. Therefore, he says, therefore, because of this prayer, because of this, this glory of, of oneness that Christ has for us, because of this, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That word welcome in the, uh, in the Greek, proslambano, I don't know a lot of Greek, but I don't know that one, apparently. Now I do at least. Means to welcome, receive, accept, those kind of words. I like that the ESV went with welcome because welcome's personal. Welcome's personal. In this, vo in this verse, Paul roots our acceptance of one another in the fact that we have already been accepted by Christ. We've been accepted by Christ, therefore we must, for the glory of of God, extend that to each other. Welcome one another into our reality. Think about what this is saying with me by noticing what it is not saying. What's it not saying? Well, what we don't read here is, um, is say hello to one another in the foyer, as Christ has said hello to you in the foyer. <laughs> Ask one another about your days, as Christ has asked you about your day. Right? High-five one another, as Christ has high-fived you. Right? Seeing it, seeing it as crudely as that, hopefully it helps you see that, aren't those things just, don't they just make a mockery of what Christ has done for us? <laughs> Friends, Jesus does not hold us at arm's length. He does not settle for polite platitudes with us. He welcomes us in, into his reality, 
into his world, into his, who he is, into his deepest heart. He draws us in. This is the welcome of Jesus. He does this at great personal cost to himself. Friends, it was at the cost of his blood that he does this. It cost him. Friends, God welcomes you in through Christ. Despite your sin, despite your failings, despite your past, despite your motivations, even today, your thoughts, even today, He accepts you on terms of pure grace. It's a gift. He does not deal with us according to our sins. And so this is the gospel of grace that we have in Christ. He welcomes us in. He welcomes you in. You can belong. You can truly belong to the Lord. And this is something he has for us to hear today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time. Either way, we each must receive it. He wants us. He wants us. He's here. He's present with us. And he wants us to be with him in his presence. And so today, would we hear this invitation from Christ to a whole new personal reality with him, that we can be grafted into him, buried into his heart forever, that he binds us to himself? Uh, Colossians 3.3 tells us, he says, it says, your very life is hidden within his life. This, like, binding together, wrapped up, made one. He gives us his spirit to dwell within us so that he can speak to us. And so when we read this verse, when we read this verse that says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, what we need to hear first is the invitation of Christ to be with him to receive his welcome once more afresh today, again. Again, for the first time or for the 10,000th time, doesn't matter. Again, we would receive that welcome. If you haven't received that, I pray that you would come hunt me or Matt down afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to receive the welcome of Jesus. But secondly, friends, this is the way that we are called to move towards other people. We are called to move towards others with this same kind of Attitude, deeply relational, okay, personal, sacrificial, generously, like with a generosity of heart, sincere. Why? Because, friends, that's how Christ welcomes us. He doesn't high-five us in the foyer. He gives us himself. So we are to, to welcome one another with that same kind of personal depth of reality. We follow our humble king, and so we, we've got to say a hard no to the kind of that insider mentality, that clickishness that you find in churches sometimes. We just can't do that. Dishonors our Lord Jesus. Our unity must flow out of the love we've received from one another. Um, can I just make maybe a, a, quick, um, a quick practical application for us, a small one, but I think a helpful one for a church like ours, and that is um, when we gather on a Sunday, the whole family together on a Sunday in the one room. Love it. It's the best. But when we do that, inevitably, every week, there'll be visitors among us. 
which is the best. If you're here and you're a visitor, welcome. I hope you feel welcomed by our church. We want to be good at welcoming people and extending the welcome of Jesus to you. Um, and so I hope we can do that after the service if you stick around. Um, for the rest of us, I guess I'm talking to you guys now. So welcome if you're visiting, but for the, for the regulars here. I think for our visitors, and again, if you're a visitor here, this is a little bit awkward. We're talking about you while you're right there. Huh. Um, probably the most important minute of the whole service, maybe let's go 40 seconds. The most important 40 seconds for the, in the service for our visitors is the 40 seconds once the worship leader has closed the service. 40 seconds is about how long it takes to sit there for maybe 10 seconds. Check your watch for maybe five. Check your phone for maybe another 15. Pretend to check your phone at least. You know, look around the room a little bit. And then by then you're like, if this feels like an eternity, I'm going to go now. <laughs> it's about 40 seconds. That's not long. That's, just, that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not a very long time before it's like, this is wildly uncomfortable for me to be here now because um, I'm being ignored. Can we all just become ninjas? Gospel welcome ninjas. In, the, in that 40 seconds after the service ends, where we can just go, man, that, that 40 seconds matters to those people. Again, if you're not those people, you don't feel it. If you're those people, you totally feel it. When I visit churches, I feel it. It's, it's just a thing. Um, let's, let's get really good at being ninjas on that, on that. So head up, service finishes, head up. Who's here that looks like, they're, like time is moving in, in, in slow motion for them because they're, it's just taking an eternity and they don't know what to do? head up, go extend the welcome of Jesus to that person. Go welcome them. Go say hello. Um, welcome them as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is not a small moment. That is not small talk. This is the glory of God on the line. So let's, let's, let's love our visitors by acknowledging that that moment is hard. Is that fair? I think we can get better at that. Heads up, look around. Who's by themselves? All right. Number three. Our unity, verse, this is verse 8 to 12. Our unity fulfills God's plan for the world. There's a little bit in here that we need to unpack a little bit to make sense of this. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, so to the Jews particularly, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus became a servant to the Jews in order to prove God's not a liar. He keeps firm to his promises. He is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Here he is. Um, the promises made to the patriarchs, particularly Abraham. The promise to Abraham. What was the Abraham, Abrahamic promise, covenant? That all the families of the earth shall be blessed in him. Uh, Genesis 12.3. Not just Israel, but all peoples. All the families of the earth. Not just Israel, but all people. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. The non-Jews the non are welcomed into this promise. In order, Paul says, in order that the Gentiles, that's us, might glorify God for his mercy. That's what we do every week as Christians. So that's what we do every day. Glorify God for his mercy. Paul's point here is this. God's salvation plan has always been global. Always been big and expansive. Massive. Just think of the heavenly scene in Revelation 7. 
uh, where you've got the great multitude before the throne, every tribe, tongue, nation, singing his praises together. This is the church. This is the people of God together. And so we need to hear this again. The kingdom of God is an expansive reality. It's going to be so much bigger than you think it is. So much bigger. So that's who our God is. That's why today, Christianity is really the only proper global religion that's not tied to ethnicities. It's just all over the world, everywhere. We do a, like we're, it's not just a Eurocentric religion. Sometimes we think of it that way. It's just like a Western religion. But guys, church is massive in Latin America, Asia, Africa, not the Middle East. Obviously, less so these days, but that's, where, that's the birthplace of, of, of our faith. We, do, we make a, a great mistake when we think of our faith as being Western. Uh, and Paul backs up this point of this, this global nature of our faith with four Old Testament scriptures that say the same thing. Firstly, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's King David in 2 Samuel. So in, in that verse, he's saying that I'll sing of how good you are among Gentiles. doesn't say that the Gentiles are singing as well, but he's, he's going to be with the Gentiles at least. That's King David in 2 Samuel. Next one. As it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Okay, so now they're included in. Hey, Gentiles, get singing to God too because you're included into the promises. That was Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses said that. Rejoice, O Gentiles. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's in Psalm 117, unnamed psalmist. We don't know who wrote it. And finally, again, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, says the root of Jesse will come. The descendants of Jesse will come. A descendant. The one who will arise to rule the Gentiles. And in him, the Gentiles will hope. So one day there's going to be this king who's going to rule over the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to hope in him. He's going to be a good king. He's going to be their savior. What's really interesting here is that Paul quotes from the law. quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from um, 2 Samuel. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from every single part of the Hebrew Old Testament, the three main categories, the, the, the law, the writings, and the prophets. As if to make this point, I can find this anywhere, guys. This is just part of God's plan. It's always been like this. This is God's plan for the world. This is thoroughly biblical, is what Paul's trying to underline for us. So why do you think he's laboring this so hard? There's whole books of the Bible about this issue, the Gentiles being welcomed in into the family of God. We spent three chapters of Romans, if you remember, talking about it, 9, 10, and 11, um, back in chapter 4 as well. This is a major theme of the Bible. And yet here we are again, talking about how the Gentiles, Gentiles get welcomed into the family of God. This is where the context of Romans actually is really helpful to know who's in the church, why this is important. The Roman church that Paul is writing into here is filled with both Jews and Gentiles, both camps. Okay, It's, it's not a single kind of monocultural church. It's, a, it's got two distinct categories, Jews and Gentiles. They both have come to worship Jesus as their Savior, as the Messiah. Wonderful. Of course it's wonderful. But the reality is, their differences were not superficial. It wasn't like half the church, like, you know, you guys, you guys are the woolly shoppers. And these guys are the coal shoppers. And in the back row there are the Aldi shoppers, right? 
The real Christians, by the way. The <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's not like that. The real, the, um, the differences in this church between the Jews and the Gentiles were not superficial differences. They ran incredibly deep. There was racial elements, definitely cultural elements, but religious elements as well. The, the Jews wanted to honor the religious customs, the, the, the Jewish rituals in the Old Testament. They, they wanted to honor those, those uh, and observe the Jewish customs. In Ephesians 2, Jared just read it out for us before, wonderful linking up, Jared. Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul calls this difference. He calls the difference the dividing wall of hostility. Imagine having one of those in a church, right down the middle there. And we'll call this aisle the dividing wall of hostility. And we'll have one team on one side, one team on the other side. That's what Paul calls it. So when, when we hear Jews and Gentiles in the church, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. There's a dividing wall of hostility here. And we're called to be one people together. So for the Roman church, this was a live issue. This was not superficial. This was not unimportant. This was the church at stake. In that church, in the Roman church, as in with a lot of the early churches, that distinction is obvious. There it is. You can see it. Jews, Gentiles. Whether it's, you know, um, where they observe the Sabbath or the food laws or whatever it is, there was a clear difference. And so Paul had to make it undeniably clear again and again and again and again. No, no, no. The Gentiles are welcomed into the family. They are truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are not second-class citizens in the household of God. They are part of God's family. So important. So that's why he keeps hitting that thing. Today in our church, that's, that's not the issue here. We don't have a dividing wall of hostility that is there because of Jews and Gentiles. My guess is if we took a poll, we have very few Jews in the room and a lot of Gentiles. Maybe 100%, maybe 99, and you're the one. Who knows? Our context is incredibly different because we are basically all Gentile uh, and not Jewish. So firstly, here's some good news for us. We are welcomed into the family of God. Amen. Praise God. So thankful that the Lord has welcomed us in. Let's not miss that wonder. But we do need to stop here and ask ourselves seriously the question. The fault line in the Roman church was obvious. There it is, dividing all of hostility. Where are our fault lines in our church that we might be tempted to divide over? Where are the fault lines in our church where Jesus would have us address with the gospel? Bring them down. wonder where you think they might be. I think there's probably a million ways we could be tempted to divide. Left to ourselves, left without the gospel, left without the Holy Spirit's guidance, there would be a million ways we could fracture if we wanted to. For example, I'm sure in this church that there are people across the political divide. I'm sure there are people both on the left side of politics and the right side of politics. We must, as a church, make room for one another. To have differences on how we engage in politics for the glory of God. For the glory of God, we must make room for one another's differences on political views. Within this church as well, there are people across the class divide, poor and rich, 
in one church, glorifying God together. And so, as a church, we must welcome all without partiality. We're told very clearly in James. We must not neglect the poor in favor of the rich, or vice versa. Historically, one problem has been much worse than the other, though. We must welcome all for the glory of God. In this church, there are people across the racial spectrum. I love that about our church. We must make every effort to understand each other, our histories, how we've been shaped by our cultures, and receive each other for the glory of God. This is not the garnish that goes on top of the real Christianity. This is Christianity on the ground, lived out. We make room to understand and receive each other for the glory of God. Friends, if we have Jesus in common, and we do, then all of those differences don't matter that much. Can't pretend like they're not there. But if we have Jesus in common, we have all we need. Amen? Let me read out what Paul, uh, what, um, Paul wrote in Ephesians, but what Jared read out before. This is what we see in Ephesians 2. He himself is our peace. I love that verse. He himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. That thing is gone. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus is our peace. He won that peace with his blood. So we've got to fight for that peace. We've got to fight for that peace. Which means every time we kind of create a new, these walls start getting built up again. We create a kind of new standard of who's in, who's out. Whatever that means, where as soon as we start dividing along any kind of lines other than the gospel of Christ, we must destroy that wall. Let, let Jesus' gospel destroy that wall once more because he is our peace. Um, one last thought from the German pastor Bonhoeffer. He said it wonderfully well. He said, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. And the more clearly and purely will Christ Jesus and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. But friends, but through Christ, we do have one another. Holy for eternity. Anogra, he himself is our peace. And like it or not, we're stuck with each other. Praise God. Praise God. We're stuck with each other for eternity. I'm going to finish with this wonderful benediction. We see in verse 13, wonderful benediction. Benedictions, in, when I'm reading Romans, make me think that he's ending. But then he just keeps writing after that. He keeps doing this, where he's like, this beautiful way to wrap up the book. Um, I've just I described to Matt, uh, Romans is kind of like the end of the Lord of the Rings. You keep, you keep thinking it's over. 
but there's more to go. So there's lots of like false ends in Romans, and uh, this is another one, and there's going to be lots, don't you worry about it. Just keep, this isn't another hour of the movie to go. Yes, there is. <laughs> Should have checked the runtime before you went in. That's... Let's end with this wonderful benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul asks God for us three things. That we'll be filled with joy in our believing. That we'll be filled with peace in our believing. But I think the true weight here is on the repeated word, hope. It's the God of hope. He wants us to abound with hope. What is it that makes hope such a wonderful reality? What makes hope so, so powerful? Hope speaks to your relationship with the future. That's what hope is. Take a moment now to think about your future. A year from now, like what's the year hold for you? Is it still the start of the year, kind of? What's the year hold for you this year? I wonder what five years from now would look like in my life, your life, in this church. Ten years? Twenty years? What's that? 2043. Oh gosh. That's got scared. As you think about about the future, do you feel hopeful? Or do you feel terrified? Let's be honest. You have no idea what's coming. No idea what's coming down the pipeline. Both this year and over the next 20 years, we have no idea what the future holds for us. But this is what hope says. God sits on the throne. He sent his son to come rescue me from my sins so that I could be with him forever. He's promised me that I'll be with him forever. <laughs> He's adopted me into his family, and he will work all things for the good of those who love him. That's what the gospel says. Hope is just faith like leaning forwards into the future. Faith is just, uh, hope is just faith, like on, up on its tiptoes, kind of peering out, out to see what's, what's over the horizon. Hope is, is faith on the ground, lived out in the sovereignty of God. That's what hope is. It's just faith. Faith in his promises, faith in what is to come. Let me finish with this. Jonathan Edwards, he, he, just, he boiled it all down so wonderfully for us. He said, there are three things, Christians, we can hope for today. We can hope in today. Three things that should give us courage. He is the God of encouragement. He is the God of hope. So Jonathan Edwards, pa- uh, pastor theologian from the 1700s. He says, firstly, first thing we can hope for, hope in. God will turn even the bad things around for our good in the end. Don't know how. That's above my pay grade. But that's what he said. God will turn even the bad things around for good in the end. Second, th- second thing we can hope in. The good things you have will never be taken away. Isn't that good news? The best things we already have, they're not going anywhere. They're ours forever. Finally, the best things are yet to come. 
Friends, we have a lot of reason to have hope. Let's go to the God of hope now in prayer. Lord, I pray today that we would receive your gift of unity and harmony and would receive your gift joy and peace and of hope. Lord, we ask that you would unite us in your son, Jesus. Bind us together in your blood, in your Holy Spirit. Keep us on the lookout for those fault lines that we might be tempted to divide over. Keep us alert to them, Lord. Would we know, Would give us wisdom to know how to handle the nuances of these things as well. But Lord, we, we ask, we ask for the glory of God that we would be a church where we are accepting and receiving one another as you have received us. We'd be initiators of relationship rather than waiters of relationship. We'd initiate with people who we don't know and we'd be willing to open our lives up to each other. Lord, we thank you for the hope we do have in Christ. The hope that all the worst things in our world will one day disappear. That somehow you're using them for our good already. And thank you for the hope that the best things we have in our life right now are not temporary, but eternal things. We thank you for the hope as well that the best things in our life are things to come. Well, we, we, do, not, we do not even know what is in store for us in the best of ways. So would you lift, up, lift, lift us up out of despair? Lord, for those of us in the room who are feeling stuck in a pit of despair, Lord, and it just feels dark and there's nowhere to turn and it's, there's no way out, Lord, I pray you'd rescue them out of that pit. Show them the hope it is theirs in Christ. Holy Spirit, pour out that hope. Would they abound, as you say, as Paul prayed, Lord, would they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, abound in hope. See that you are moving in a million different ways that they just can't see. Lord, we thank you for this word for our church. Thank you for this reminder that you care how it is we interact with one another is for your glory. Pray that you would be glorified in this church, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.